and we're going to read um, Luke 15, 1 through 32. So I'll give you a minute to find it in your Bible or on your phone or however you're following along. I'll give you just a second to catch up. And the passage reads, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And there ends the reading of the word. Let's just bow our heads for a quick moment. Word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we get to come together and hear your word and study your word, for we know that your word nourishes us. We ask that the Holy Spirit move in us today and give us the word that we need in our hearts and our lives. Amen. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he was teaching daily. And on this occasion, Luke makes a point of just telling us straight away about the nature of the crowd itself, the people who are listening to the message. And it's important because on one side, we have the tax collectors and the outcasts, and on the other side, we have the Pharisees and all the other you know, righteous Jewish leadership you know, who knew the law, and they were just bent on making sure that everyone stuck to the letter of it. Now, you might think that that little detail has no relevance in our worship today. When I was living in Augusta and I was still single, I began going to the local Baptist church. It was huge, one of those uh, big mega churches with an equally huge singles ministry. And so it seemed to me a really good idea, a good way to meet other single adults. And I really liked the man who was in charge of the single adult ministries program. He was an excellent speaker, and I could tell he really cared about single adults. But I'll never forget him telling this story about his first Sunday working on the job. He'd had what he considered a really successful Sunday school experience, and he was headed into the sanctuary with his flock when one of the older married members comes up and pulls him aside, and much to his chagrin, that person said to him, we love the fact that you've taken them on, but you don't have to sit with them. Now, I tell you that story not as a slam against Baptists, but that was to show you how easy it is to be an outcast within your own church. In this case, just by being single. But the number of ways to get there are endless, even now, even then. You see, all of the people on the other side of the aisle from the Jewish leadership, they'd broken Jewish law. And insofar, as those leaders were concerned, all those people were lost causes. So in this passage, there are actually three different stories of lost things. Jesus begins with the story of the lost sheep. Ninety-nine sheep are safe. One of them is lost. And he says that all of them would leave the ninety-nine safely in the pasture to find the lost one. And then rejoice when it's found. And he says that in the same way, the father rejoices over one lost sinner. There's a meme that reads, Jesus leaving the 99 to find one seems illogical, irrational, and senseless until that one is you. And Jesus is illustrating the enormity of God's grace, which can be difficult for us to understand. 
And we also have to always remember that he's talking very specifically, in this case, to the Jewish leadership. Because he ends the passage with, righteous persons need no repentance. Can't you just imagine him just kind of staring down the Pharisees as he said it? See, it was good news for the sinner and mind-boggling for the people who thought that they were authorities on God. However, the point was pretty much lost on everybody, so he queued up another story. And this time, it was about a woman with her lost coin. My study Bible says that those ten coins represent approximately ten days of work. So losing one would be akin to losing approximately one day's worth of wages. That's significant. And still, I mean, can't you almost feel the crowd's eyes glazing over? I mean, they're just not getting it. And I think that the reason is we really don't care about lost things until the lost thing is us. Which is why Jesus tells the third story. And that story is rich. It's delicious. It's so good that it's going to be difficult for me to stick to my allotted amount of time. But I will try. We must keep in mind the audience. Lost people and experts on Jewish law. Of course, even the outcasts are experts on Jewish law because they experience the backside of it every single day. So, Jesus begins the story by saying, well, there's this man who has two sons. And most certainly that gained the attention of everyone immediately. Today, two sons would mean nothing. Less than nothing. I mean, after all, the national average is two children, technically 1.86. But back then, having only two children was a tad unusual. So I'm sure everyone leaned forward in their seats just a little bit. What? What's this? Only two sons? What sin has this man committed? That's what story that they thought they were going to hear. But then the story really takes off. It's just not in the way the people expected. You see, the younger son had what we could only consider to be an unimaginable conversation with his father. And I suspect that the conversation would go something like this. Dad, I know that you're not dead, but let's just pretend that you are. And you give me my share of the money now. I couldn't imagine having a conversation like that with my father when he was alive. I just can't wrap my head around that. You see, the son could have asked for a loan. He could have explained that maybe he wanted to travel. Maybe he just had this desire to do something different. But he would be back when he was ready to settle down. He'd come home. But that was the problem. He didn't ever plan on settling down, and he didn't ever plan on coming home. Because if he did, that would have been the proposition that he would have made. Instead, he asked for his inheritance. And in order to get an inheritance, there had to be a death. You see, I can almost hear the gasp from the crowd as Jesus tells this story. 
This society is built on laws, family laws, marital laws, social laws. And surely the son broke one, if not ten, of those laws by asking for his inheritance while the father was still alive. And in the event, everyone knows that a death is required for an inheritance to be issued. And since the father was still very much alive, the only thing that could die was their relationship. He was going to be lost to his father. And he wanted to be lost to his father. What a horribly bitter pill for this father to swallow. And yet, he gave him the money, and the son went off to have his good time. Now, I imagine that that good time would have looked very much like Las Vegas if he lived here and now. In Las Vegas, I guarantee you, you'll find a sin that you like and some that you love. I've gone a couple times with my mom, and she very wisely told me to leave my credit and debit cards at home. It is a cash-only vacation. And the last time that we went there, we took a bus trip to Laughlin, Nevada, and the driver coming back pointed out all these car lots that were close to downtown Las Vegas. He said that they'd sprung up when Las Vegas was in its heyday. People would lose everything that they had in the casinos. Then they'd take their car to these lots and sell it for money so they could go back to the casinos and try to win it all back. I imagine that the younger son fell prey to that same sort of thinking. And in the end, he lost it all. And he too was stuck in the desert. Famine struck, and he was in big trouble. Such big trouble that he had to beg a job working to feed pigs. Worse yet, he envied the pigs their bean pods. Remember your audience now. I mean, these are folks who knew the law. Pigs are unclean. Touching them, just touching them, is breaking a food law. So I suspect there was probably more gasping from the crowd at this point in the story. The leadership would have been horrified by the touching of the pigs, while the outcast might have simply known what it was like to be hungry. Have you ever been at the crossroads of a huge decision, a make or break decision, a decision that even as you make it, you know is going to change your life forever? For the younger son, deciding to go home to his father was that sort of crossroads. Surely it was scary. I mean, beyond scary. Anything could happen. For all intents and purposes, he was dead to his father. And he knew he was going back to ask for a job as a hired hand. He had no expectations of anything more, and there were certainly possibilities for worse. If you've ever wronged someone grievously, the hardest thing that you're ever going to have to do is go up to them and ask them for forgiveness. Your heart's going to ache the whole way until you get those words out. And then you're going to stand there dying inside 
until they give you a yes or no. I forgive you. I don't forgive you. The father, he knew this. And that leads us to one of the tastiest parts of the story. The son is coming home, and the father sees him from a long way off. The story says he sees him from a long way off. I mean, we're not sure exactly how long the way is, but it says it is long, right? It is long. And the father ran to him and threw his arms around him. For someone who was terrified of the reception that they would get, that must have been an enormous relief. I mean, the father didn't stand there scowling, waiting for him to ponderously make his way to him, but instead ran to him and threw his arms around him. And then the son apologized, acknowledging that he'd sinned against him in heaven. It was no longer worthy to be called his son. And in response, the father immediately set into motion these plans for this enormous party to be thrown in the son's honor because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He was dead. See, a death occurred as soon as the son asked for his inheritance and his feet left the property. But when he realized that he'd chosen badly, forgave himself first for that bad decision, returned home, and then asked for the father's forgiveness, he came alive again. You see, all he had to do was turn around and ask. He had to turn around. I want you to recall Jesus' first sermon, that very short sermon in Mark. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent or turn around. You have to turn around, people. You have to turn around because the Father always says yes. Meanwhile, the older son, he catches wind of the party, becomes angry, refuses to come inside. The older son, like the younger son, left the father. Granted, it was for a very short time, then the father came out to meet him, just as he had with the younger son, because the father knew he was lost. He knew his older son didn't understand why the one who does wrong leaves, misbehaves, why does that one get the party? Bottom line, the elder son felt less loved by the father. So he rants about a goat and a calf, but his heart is screaming, Why do you love him more than you love me? How can you love him more than you love me? The older son is angry because of his certainty that the father loves him less than the younger brother. There's a wonderful book. By Henri J.M. Nguyen. I probably totally mispronounced his name. I apologize for that. But it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in it, he says so many insightful things about this parable. But one of them that really struck with me was that we all so easily become the older son 
simply by virtue of this world that we live in. This world is one of comparisons. We unconsciously measure ourselves against other people 24-7. Someone else is given a compliment about their hair, and we wonder about our own. Someone else is given an award, and we wonder about uh, our abilities. It goes on and on and on and on. It's exhausting. It will not make us happy. It's also something the Father simply does not do. The Father's love, and I want you to hear me on this, is a non-comparing love. So when the older son stands outside truly believing that his father loves the younger brother more because a party was thrown for his homecoming, Jesus needs us to understand this essential fact about who God is. He needed the Jewish leadership to understand it. He needed the outcasts to understand it. And he needs you and I to understand it. God does not love more or less. God's love is a non-comparing love. For many years, I read the story of the prodigal son, and I saw myself in the role of the older brother, and I just didn't like the story. It rubbed me wrong. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. And then later in life, I struggled with chronic migraines, and I felt abandoned by God, and there were some dark years there. So when I heard the story after that, I identified with the younger brother. And then I felt embraced by God. See, we might alternate between identifying with the older brother or the younger brother in this story, but I think Jesus wants us to see the Father. He wants us to notice the heart of the Father. You see, notice when the Father talks to his elder son, he doesn't even address any of the stuff about the party and who got what when. But instead, he cuts straight to the heart of the matter. The Father says, technon. That's what he says in Greek. Not, since none of us read, don't read Greek and the Bible's not in Greek, we miss that. But he says, technon which is an affectionate term for child. Technon, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. He's saying, son, change your focus. Look at this differently. Nothing has changed for you. I love you just as much today as yesterday, just as much today as tomorrow. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. The Father could not say it more clearly than this. My love for you is unlimited. Everything I have is yours. And this message is true for you as well. You, all of you, are my children. If you stay huddled close in my house and in my word, or if you stray, and return home. All I ask is that you come home, that you repent. You see, I sent my son to die on a Roman cross for you. My love for you is unlimited. Technon, you are here with me always. Amen.